This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The air is thick with the smoke of a thousand burning fishing boats and the Thames is full of heroic dead British fish who gave their lives for our freedom or something. Welcome back to Romaniacs, where we treat Brexit with all the grave respect it totally deserves. I'm Peter Collins and I have two of our regulars with me today. Naomi Smith is now Chief Operating Officer at Best for Britain, although she's here in her private capacity. And as well as being a citizen of nowhere, she's a citizen of Pimlico. She tweets as Pimlicat. Hello, Naomi. I have a question for you. Uh Will the colour of passports to Pimlico change? They will forever remain a beautiful EU burgundy. And, of course, um, for those of you who've had the uh, fortune of going, the passport office, of course, is in Pimlico. So I'm thinking it when is. we when we you know have independence, we're going to draw the, the border along uh, Buckingham Palace Road and keep that passport office. I, I just thought it would be nice Pimlico. if they were stucco white or something. <laughs> like that, you know. Well, actually, if you, um, if you type Pimlico into the Dulux website, it does come up with quite a reddish pink colour. Oh, that's interesting. Fun, fun fact, listeners. How often do you do that? <laughs> so, once a day. Which other websites have you typed your address into <laughs> to see what returns you get? So, but Best of Britain have just launched this billboard campaign mm. um, with the totally unreasonable request: When will we know what we're voting for mm-hmm. or what we voted for? Do you get the sense that this idea is taking hold? That you know we're realizing that actually. Don't know what we're going to mm. get. Yes, I do. Um, so we also had a poll out this oh. week that showed that forty-four uh, percent of voters say they want a say on the terms of Brexit, as opposed to thirty-six percent of people who don't. Um, and when we've done, you know, sort of message testing and, and talking to voters, what's become really clear is that they have kind of a, almost like a traumatic response when you refer them back to twenty sixteen, and that that trauma is borne out with the fact that they felt they didn't know what they were voting for then, and they still don't know what they would be voting for now were they asked to you know to any kind of second referendum which is why what really works is when you talk to people about having a say on the terms so once we know what those terms are then absolutely yes I do want to have a say in, in, in what those are. It does seem astonishing that you've got even even if it's 36% of people say no I don't don't want to say I don't want my I don't want you to listen to my opinions at all I mean these yeah. are surely people you can work on. Well you know we can't be complacent about anything and I think where we do need to do quite a bit of work is on getting Labour to reassess Keir Starmer's six tests for Brexit um, and and to really have a good bit of sort of robust thought leadership done by that party to see where we're we're going with that and and convincing some of those Labour Party members and Labour voters that actually things are not going anywhere near as well as they ought to be. Also with us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, and he's that man that you keep seeing on Sky News getting all shouty about what's in the papers. (laughs) 
Hello, Ian. It's not one of our main issues this week, but I have a quick question for you. How is it that Labour's Barry Gardner gets to dismiss the Good Mm. Friday Agreement as a shibboleth and to say that Ireland's just playing up all the problems for economic gain and somehow stay in his job, and yet Owen Smith gets sacked for floating a second referendum, which is a policy that the Labour conference, I do believe, actually approved. They did. How does this work? I don't understand the People's Party. It's the special (laughs) magic of Cabinet responsibility or of collective responsibility that it sort of appears and then disappears Mm -hmm. according to when it's most useful to you. So it sort of appeared when Owen Smith said what he said, but when Gardner comes out and calls Labour's entire policy on Brexit bollocks, he is still somehow managing to abide by collective responsibility. Why, why does he get a free pass? I think because they sort of think he's broadly on side with Corbyn. I mean, he, he was a Remainer sort of during the referendum. He then became, he's, he's really quite Brexity at the moment. But ultimately, he's not Owen Smith. He hasn't challenged Corbyn for the leadership. I think he gets a free pass for the same reason that Diane Abbott got a free pass. And, you know, so even someone like Tom Watson does, that he's basically just not considered a threat to Corbyn. It seems to me that what he wants, what Gardner wants, is what he would call a workers' rights Brexit. In other words, trade protectionism that protects a small group of workers that are subject to tra- uh, foreign competition at the expense of all consumers as yeah. all consumers. Never... Therefore, you have to pretend that the Irish border thing doesn't doesn't matter. Yeah? He, he's a bit of a he's a bit of a conundrum for me because at the beginning he was actually presented as someone who was quite impressive, um, sort of by you know Labour sources. It's actually around the table. He's the one asking pertinent questions. But I haven't really seen any of that from his mm-hmm. public pronouncements or what is reported of his private ones in meetings like this he seems to be really quite ignorant there's quite a lot of people out there saying that his idea that those six tests are bollocks is is correct i, I actually think those tests are quite useful mm. so remember they were there when there's six months after the referendum when the tories were saying you can have whatever you want you can have everything it's going to be exactly the same that's when those tests were developed to go well fine yep. then that's the fucking test yep. but if you failed to do the things that you said for months you were going to be able to do then this must be considered a failure that of course it is bollocks objectively but it's very useful effective bollocks. That's all we need. It's it's strange to me that he hasn't seen that. Also, this week we have not one, but two special guests. Jason Hazley and Joel Morris are two of Britain's best-selling authors. They're the guys who wrote the Ladybird books for grown-ups, which have sold more than four million copies in the process solving many a what-shall-we-get-dad-for-Christmas problem. (laughs) They were part also of the writing team on the Paddington movies, and of course they're also the co-creators of Philomena Kunk, the BBC's bonehead Headed investigative everywoman, played by Diane Morgan, who's now branched out from Charlie Brooker's Screenwipe show to her own series, Kunk on Britain. Jason is at least a fellow Brexaholic, we know, because he came to our Romaniacs live show recently and even paid to get in. I did. What a guy. <laughs> Hello, Jason Joel. How Hi. Hello. Hi. I, l- I listen all the time. In fact, you're on my phone at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of weird, actually, being in a room with people I was listening to about ten minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm say my, how... this, is, this is like being backstage with One Direction. It's pretty <laughs> <exciting>. <laughs> uh, So we're going to talk about Philomena Kunk in detail later, but the joke with the Ladybird books, it's basically, am I right in assuming that it's like a spin on sort of this rosy-tinted nostalgia that we Brits live off. Is that the I- That's where you got the idea from? It was based on... It was based quite practically. We'd seen that they'd published... Uh, reproductions of old Ladybird books which we had and collected growing up. We'd seen they published them as, as a gift box of about four, four for boys and four for girls. And we thought, well, you've got a factory somewhere that makes Ladybird books. And we do a lot of pastiche and parody for sketch shows and for TV. And we're, the one thing we're always looking for is, is, can we borrow your set to do a Dickens parody on? And this is the book equivalent of that. They'd built a lady. There's a Ladybird factory that makes Ladybird books that smell and taste like Ladybird books. So we then thought, what could we put in them? And the answer was, let's pretend Ladybird didn't stop. 
let's pretend those books were still being published and the team were still doing them and the joke was there's no way you could afford those illustrators anymore because a lot of them are very old and this is from the <laughs> golden age of commercial illustration. Yeah, they're, they're too expensive now. So let's pretend that the company is still going, still selling to the same market, like Star Wars movies, you've grown up and they can't get any more illustrations, so they keep having to get the old illustrations out of a drawer and pretend that's a hipster or a, or, or someone building a shed. And that was, it was just a joke that's, that was just to do with practicalities. What could you do with the equipment that's lying around at Ladybird Towers? And the answer was this joke. So you've done the, all sorts of things like uh, the Ladybird Book of the Midlife Crisis and the zombie apocalypse. One obvious uh, omission that occurs to us is <laughs> why not the Ladybird Book of Brexit? Good question. We, when we um, the first year the books were out, we did a lot of um, uh, literary festivals and that question would always come up in the Q&A routinely. Are you going to do Brexit? The other one that came up was are you going to do Trump? To which there's an easy answer, where are we going to find that hairstyle anywhere other than on the top of that supposed human being? Um, so, and the Brexit one, we said no, and we said it's because it's too divisive an issue, because it's literally, it's so divisive, it's nearly 50-50. We're both very pro-Remain, so I don't think we could write it anyway, but the, that wasn't the truth. The truth was, it was just too fucking depressing a prospect to try and be funny about. <laughs> that was the thing. It's also, when I mean, you've had comedians on here before, one of the things that caused, I mean, it made writing 2016 wipe for, for Charlie Brooker very, very difficult. We all had minor breakdowns writing that, because the news collapsed in on itself in the middle of the year while we were doing it, and it became so divisive. One of the things you want, if you're going to be not a satirist, it's too big. But if you want to do comedy about topical events, what you want is a broad consensus from your audience that Margaret Thatcher's a bit authoritarian or that Tony Blair's gone a bit mad. Mm. What happens if you do a joke about Brexit or Trump or actually most political issues now, you do a joke about them, and instead of the audience being angry at the target of your joke, mm. they're angry with you. Mm. Half of them hate you, hate yeah. the messenger, want to shoot the messenger. Humour doesn't work. And, and so they, they stop laughing. Mm. And the whole point is we're supposed to all broadly agree that Norman Tebbit was a bit right-wing. <laughs> or that... Or, or, or was even, he? The, or, well, actually, the weird one is, if you wanted to say that Jeremy Corbyn was a bit left-wing now, half your audience would go, well, he's not really, not compared... And you go, wow, I can't even do a really basic private eye-level gag. And it kind of ties your hands behind your back at doing anything more nuanced than that. And you end up just reaching for who's fat and who's thin. And it's not much fun. Mm. So mm. you also co-wrote um, those two books about some of the strange and less visited tourist attractions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bollocks to Brexit and then Far From the Sodding Crowd. Um, <laughs> bollocks to Alton Towers, it was. Yeah, sorry, bollocks to Alton Towers. And but bollocks to Brexit, I agree. Brexit. Yeah, yeah, we, 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 we can bring it back for that. Yeah. <laughs> Brexit, the shirt. Brexit's on the break. And, and the reason I ask it is that we're now yes. going to get a <laughs> Brexit Museum. Yes, I oh, know. I know. As experts on this, what, what do you think should be in it and where should it be? Hang on a minute. Let's, let's go from the start, shall we? Right, if I can't think of three words more likely to make me want to ralph up a fucking eye than Museum of Sovereignty. Honestly, oh my it's so God. revolting. And Nick Clegg, again, this is where the humour fails. Well, you should put the uh, you should put the NHS bus in the, in the forecourt. That's, mate, you're not being funny about this. That was a fucking lie we were all sold. Let's stop joking about it, shall we? This is something you need to take sinking, very seriously. Sinking giggling into the sea, as, as Peter yeah, Cook said. Yeah, Peter Cook's thing, yeah. Um, God, what would go in the Museum of Sovereignty? Well, no, because what it should be, it should be like the Millennium Dome. It should be a lot of discussion about what goes in there and then nothing should go in it. Well, so yeah. It should go in there and it should just be a, a monument to committee thinking. 
Well, somebody from Open Britain suggested that one of the prime exhibits should be Boris Johnson's Lost Moral Compass. <laughs> Very witty. Yeah, what about a huge pile of bullshit? What about you just walk around an enormous fenced-off bit of bullshit, which has got a flag in it marked, this is not bullshit, you know? <laughs> well, oddly, they're, call- they're sometimes calling it the Museum of Sovereignty, but the website actually is www.museumofbrexit.uk, inevitably. Ugh. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure, listeners, absolutely sure they would love to hear your suggestions. They are saying, aren't they, that this is meant to be a, a resource for future academics to examine the uh, the phenomenon of Brexit. There was a piece published, oh, um, uh, Kunk, <laughs> writing about Brexit. It was in The Guardian, I think, last week or the week before, to coincide with the first episode of Kunk on Britain. The series was delayed. We wrote that piece last October, and The Guardian were ready to run it. Then the BBC shunted the transmission date. The piece was absolutely as relevant when we wrote it in mid-October as mm. it is at the end of March, beginning of April. Because fuck all What's has happened. happened. Yeah. Because no one has we're done anything or said anything. We're in, in, a weird no, we're in absolute. It was just discussion. I mean, the, position. This, this show is part of that. It's just discussion. And what's really odd about it, as as people who are supposed to be responding to the news occasionally for our job, is that there hasn't been any news uh, <laughs> that anyone can agree on. What's really strange? We ran that piece, or uh, the Guardian ran that piece by, uh, essentially by Philomena Kunk about Brexit. It got people's blood up, people objected to it, people had all opinions on it, and we were sitting there going, this is what we thought about Brexit six months ago. And they were going, oh, a bit of satire, or people were saying, oh, terrific, you've really stuck it to them, and you're going... You can't have satire that's effective in a Tupperware box for six months. What that says is there's something wrong with how we're discussing this issue, mm. which is it's become too boring, too complicated. It's become uh, mired down in stasis or lies or something's gone wrong with it because we should be able to discuss this as an ongoing news story. And weirdly, even though we are both obsessed by it to the extent that we've read the books and things, we probably had nothing more to say about it six months later than we had in October last year. Well, we'll be talking to Jason and Joel throughout the show, but also this week, there's another new centrist party in the offing. (laughs) This one reportedly with 50 million quid of funding from the fellow who founded Love Film. Another week, another party. But does the loud scoffing from the left and right indicate that maybe there's something to it, the idea of a party of the radical centre? Plus, Hungary has re-elected an authoritarian anti-Semite who blames George Soros and the EU for all of his country's imaginary ills. And, of course, Boris Johnson falls over himself to congratulate Viktor Orban on his victory. Is the march of the far right in Europe accelerating and should we in Britain worry? And in bracing winds of international trade news, our beloved Commonwealth partner India has signalled that it's not especially interested in signing a trade deal with us. Can it be that our former colonies aren't all that keen in helping out the mother country with air quotes after all? All this and more after a brief message from Naomi. Romaniacs listeners, it's time to do your duty for your favourite podcast. Vote for us in the listeners' choice category at the British Podcast Awards. It's the one that matters because it's the will of the people and nobody can argue with that. (laughs) Just go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote and enter Romaniacs. You'll be helping us towards a prestigious award and you could win two tickets to the event as well, in which case we hope we'll see you there. Ed Miliband has already won one podcast award, so he really doesn't need another. So that's britishpodcastawards.com slash vote and enter Romaniacs. Of course, if you want to give a little more help, you can always pledge a few pounds to Romaniacs each month via Patreon and get smart Romaniacs mugs, bags and T-shirts in return. Find out more at romaniacs.com or go to patreon.com slash Romaniacscast. Join in and own the Ramon. 
Now, the hills are alive with the sound of Brexit news. First up, that new centrist party that we've been reading about. The Observer broke the story that entrepreneurs, philanthropists and donors keen to break the Westminster mould have been secretly working together to set up a new party. It would borrow ideas from centre-right and centre-left, and it would provide an alternative to the two main parties which have been captured by their own radical wings. Potential policies are said to include asking the rich to pay more tax, better funding for the NHS and improved social mobility, plus some centre-right ideas on wealth creation and entrepreneurship and tighter immigration controls. It's not just for Romaniacs, apparently. Some Brexit supporters are involved, said The Observer. The plan is not to run any candidates before the 2022 general election, and the key funder is said to be Simon Franks, who's the guy who set up Love Film. The idea of setting up a new party of the centres had an unfortunate history in this country. Friend of the show, Lord Adonis, said, Believe me, I was a founder member of the SDP. It failed and we can't fail this time. Ian, we've been here before. The the SDP came and went in the 1980s. But should we dismiss this out of hand? I mean, the two big parties aren't representing the mass of voters. Uh, Do Mm. we actually need a new centre party? Well, it would be good if we could have one, but this has all been very... This is well-covered ground, but it's worth repeating now that the way that our system is organised makes it very, very difficult for this to take place because of first past the post. So what Macron did was just manage to leap over that process because of the presidential system that is available to him. That is a very hard thing to replicate here. The SDP has a sort of almost traumatic sort of uh, historical memory, I think, for the left in Britain and for Liberals. But actually, it did pretty well for a short period. And the counter to the sort of first-past-the-post argument is to say, look, we're in extremely volatile political times and people shift quicker than we might expect. And maybe the old brands don't have the same purchase that they had. But I have to say, I don't think that argument quite adds up to saying that there's a tenable way that this party would be able to get into power. But also, I don't know what any of those policies we just read out mean. I mean, it, yeah. just, it doesn't... You know, I, it, it's, I have no idea whether any of this is tenable because it's just basically a surplus of demand and there's no supply to meet it so we constantly have this broiling thing where someone's late at night on Twitter sets up a new party or someone says something to the observer but I just don't I mean unless you have more details it's impossible to say whether any of this would work or whether it's a good idea or not and I don't think we should have centrism. I mean, what is centrism? I mean, it's partly a definitional thing. I think you're getting at with the whole, well, what are these policies and what do they really mean? But if you, if you take it to mean equidistance from the other two, then you're defined by them and you don't have principles and values. And if one or the other party shift further to the left or the right, well, you know, by definition, the centre ground moves. Do you shift with it? No, I don't think most voters would. And when you look at the electoral mathematics of it all, where voters actually are, a new party actually needs to be at the very least centre centre left if not centre left because that's where the majority of Remain voters are occupying the ground to, to overtake the Labour Party as you say in a first past post system that's probably where it would need to be and not in this economically right wing but socially left wing kind of that position. question of, of what is centrism is really, really interesting because for the majority of people who use it, who are usually sort of Corbynist type people, it really means non-Tory Corbyn opponents. I think that's the definition of it for them. For a lot of other people, it is, as you were just describing them, it's a kind of electoral calculation. You sort of think, well, where's the right, where's the left? And the way to win is always to be somewhere in the middle of these two guys. And for others, the old Blair way of looking at it was not just electoral. It was also a matter of principle. Like Tony Blair himself said, it's like it's worse than you think. I actually believe in this stuff. And that was ultimately (laughs) that, you know, we will take the proceeds of the free market, pretty much set it free and use that to fund help for the disadvantage. Now, in terms of that, that's almost where everyone is, really. I mean, it's not as if 
we've accepted there should be more controls over sort of financial services. But you look at what something like Momentum is proposing right now. They're not talking about going back to Clause 4. They're not talking yeah. about, you know, nationalising the entirety of the means of production. They're talking about basically, let's nationalise utilities. Gourmet Burger Kitchen would mm. still be a private company. There's a limit. Yes, well, who, who knows how that would work out? So I don't really see that there's such a big distinction between the positions of people who ostensibly have very different ideas. And I'm not sure that people always have a very clear idea of what it is that they're talking about when they use the word centrist in the first place. Jason and Joel, are you up for a bit of light centrism? Are you centric, curious? Or well, do you know, the, when this story I broke... The centre. When, I didn't <laughs> miss it. I'd like, it'd be nice to have it back. But it's, a bit, it's a bit quiet at the moment, isn't it, yeah. the centre? When this story broke on Sunday, I, I did genuinely think to myself, well, for those of us who are crawling parched across the political desert. Here's the fucking peanut butter fountain we've been waiting for, isn't it? You know, like, this is going to help. It's problematic, though, isn't it? I thought you were talking about Macron. I thought the model would have been UKIP, because they've got the model there of saying, we can bring a party out of pretty much out of nowhere, start it from the ground up, and it does tremendously well. But, of course, the problem they've got there is that there is that colossal, much as UKIP can go and fuck their own fists, as far as I'm concerned, the difference between the number of votes they got and how that showed up in terms of returns of MPs was pretty astonishing, mm. really. But they I mean, did- they they did manage to change the debate. I mean, that, that's the other thing. Is, what you need is that is it might be arguable that you need that voice. I mean, we're talking about Overton window shifting backwards and forwards and things. If someone says, and the reason that UKIP worked, even though they can't get an MP mm. returned, is they did change the debate. It completely distorted it because it was an exciting, different thing to say. Weirdly, mm. centrism is probably not as exciting in media terms, so you'd have trouble changing the landscape with it. I, I think what's annoying about it is this seems to be tied up with identity politics a little bit, as in it's to do not to do with a need for people to vote for a party that has these policies but for a need to not be seen to be voting for either of the other parties because you don't like Corbyn because of mm-hmm. political or, or, or uh, anti-Semitism or anything. something that you're worried you'll be identified as a friend of those views and ditto with the Tory party. What you want is a non-toxic party without those associations of, oh, you're one of them. And that's what it seems to be serving, isn't, rather than any politics. Isn't the problem also that it's 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 much easier to divide the left than it is to divide the right? Because the Tory party are very good at binding together, even yeah. when they fucking hate Hugely each other and they're at each other's throats. Whereas Labour is is good at fragmenting. Well, actually, and that's where the SDP came in. The Tory party actually managed to hold itself together by destroying the entire country, and that's what Brexit is. It's <laughs> an attempt to hold the Tory party together by burning the rest of us as a sacrifice. And it's very whenever small I, price to pay. Sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got to a point where the wicker populace, as, as obviously. A, a, a metropolitan elite liberal. I was reading the Evening Standard on the way home and realising it was just a rag mag about the Tory Party. <laughs> and it was basically, I wasn't living in London. I was living in a soap opera about the Tory Party. The whole of, of the news was about what the rows were within the Tory Party. I was going, God, it's like no one else exists. You're, you've sort of yeah been absorbed yeah. into this row that is nothing to do with me or most people. But they are the primal drive for most of the politics around Brexit. I think. And I think what hasn't changed, of course, since the eighties and SDP and all of that is that our voting system. Them, and you know mm. they were getting fifty percent in the polls, which was double what Thatcher was getting. But then you know they only translated that into twenty-three MPs and eighty-three and things like that. I think what has changed is the appetite for a centre-left party, particularly among young people who have been screwed over by housing crisis, wage stagnation, yeah, education, debt, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And they are the ones that are crying out for something different and something radical. And the radical centre always sort of jars with me a bit because I'm not sure that, that such a thing really exists. I think you can be radical or centrist, but not necessarily both. But what there is an upswell for 
for is an anti-Brexit, pro-wealth redistribution party that upholds and promotes an open society. Mm. And and it's this it's this recalibration of the electorate around open-closed rather than left-right, which is very different from the 80s, uh, and I think very exciting if a, if a new party could seize that. If you're not depressed enough with two parties, one policy in Britain, imagine what fun it is to live in a supposed democracy that's drifting into authoritarianism. In Hungary, hardliner Viktor Orban won a third consecutive term as Prime Minister after campaigning on a platform of conspiracy theory, xenophobia and anti-Semitism. I think Jeremy Corbyn's taking notes, actually. Supported by a compliant news media. In a one-note anti-immigrant campaign, Orban presented himself as Hungary's defender against a supposed Muslim invasion. He blames the European Union and immigrants for all of Hungary's ills, despite the fact that only 2% of the country's population was born abroad. His campaign drummed home a classic demagogue's message. George Soros is at the head of an international conspiracy to destroy Hungary. And, of course, Mr Soros just happens, by coincidence, to be Jewish. Orban's landslide victory now gives him the power to make constitutional changes and enact his anti-Soros laws. And he's also expected to follow the Putin playbook and start uh, having a go at foreign NGOs. Ian, you wrote a pretty angry piece in politics.co.uk. Someone like me. Yes. But a very, very good piece. <laughs> a very good Even written. if I do. Look to Hungary if you want to know what you're fighting against, it said. How does it relate to us in Britain? You've got, you've already listed, I think, most of the constituent parts, sort of. I mean, I keep on calling it the conspiracy squint, which is this sort of attitude. It's definitely there on the far left and the far right, and we've seen it really linked up recently over the Salisbury stuff and increasingly over the stuff in Syria. But I think, I'm, I'm afraid to say, you know, we've been talking about the BBC quite a bit recently. I see bits of it with my allies, you know, sensible allies, of, of actually talking in quite similar sort of terms, a, a sort of diluted version of anything you see on the right or left, of course, absolutely. But it's still kind of a, a, a sort of sense of there being shadowy forces of control behind almost everything that you look at. The anti-Semitism, absolutely. That intense sort of hatred of the other, which can be framed in various ways, but it's typically the migrant in a way that, you know, in the 80s, that would have been probably more based on something like sexuality. Whereas mm. now, you even look at Marine Le Pen is very comfortable with sort of sexuality. But then when it comes to migrants, or especially Islam, you'll see like a very, very strong attack there. Uh, attacks on an independent judiciary. It, there's almost nothing that he... He is a distilled, extreme version of a lot of disparate strands in British politics. So we're not seeing all of that at the same time in Britain. But you can... T- I mean, the things that I just said, you take attacks on an independent judiciary, what do we think that Daily Mail front page was? You know, what do we think the effect <laughs> of that will be? When we look forward to the stuff the government's talking about with the European Court of Justice, about the way that British courts would be allowed to take account, but would not be directed to take account of their rulings. Imagine you're a judge thinking that you're going to take account of the European Court of Justice's rulings after Brexit. You know what the Daily Mail are going to do. You know how they're going to treat you. So what does that actually do by saying that they can just take count? That basically means that the courts are ruled by right-wing tabloids because they will come and slaughter you if you even Mm. consider it. All of these bits are there. Our only mercy is that they're all spread out and they're not crystallised in the personality of one strongman as they are in, in Hungary. Maybe have you got any ideas of how we get out of this conspiracy squint and basically sort of disinfect it from from the body politic? I mean, I think that's a very interesting question. And it's all about restoring trust in a political system uh, and education. If you allow politics to become something that is done by 
a centralised elite group. You make it incredibly easy, particularly for libertarians, to dismiss the political class acting in its own interests all the time. And that elitism then paves the way for authoritarians to offer themselves up as this kind of antidote and counterweight to it. And people believe that and then they buy into all that sort of nonsense about needing a strong man to cut through that, whether it's Putin or Oban or whatever. So um, I I think the elitism, particularly in this country, you know, over the last couple of decades, Blairism, uh, Cameronism um, uh, and and Cleggism has all helped fuel that sentiment. We've centralised too much power and that has made decision making seem really remote to most people. So I think I think in order to, to start fixing that, we've got to invest a lot more in becoming a properly representative liberal democracy. And that means encouraging people to get involved and to stand for things. That means, you know, workers' rights and industrial democracy. It means encouraging people to stand, to be school governor, to do all of those things so that democracy isn't just something you do once every five years by, you know, putting a cross in a box. It's something that isn't done to you by an elite political class. It's something that you can begin to have faith in and that you feel that you, you own and you are very much part of. But there's a big problem with that, which is that people... People, it seems, just don't want to participate in politics. They want to complain about the elite and how terrible they are, but they won't join political parties. They won't get involved in, mm. you know, processes. They don't turn up to the local council meetings. What they want to do is to treat the political parties like the supermarkets, like Tesco and Sainsbury's, with these incoming parties, like a bit like Little and Aldi, mm. um, you know, that are sort of <laughs> offering you a choice. And they want to treat them as consumers and to say, mm. you know, we're fed up with Tesco now. We're going to go to Little mm. uh, because the prices are better or, or whatever. That's the problem, isn't it? getting people to actually take part. And, and, I, and you know, that's where the media has got a very big role to play as well because people need information they can trust and they don't trust this at the moment. And so, it, you know, it, we've been complacent for too long. This is a long-term project. This isn't something that is going to be fixed quickly or, or radically. And, you know, when Theresa May first took uh, office as Prime Minister, she actually did say some really good stuff about corporate governance and, and trying to empower workers. And if we can begin to do that kind of stuff, you can begin to, you know, edge, edge towards people taking a more proactive citizenship um, uh, and, and take up their civic responsibility. But I, I don't think there is a quick fix to dealing with this sort of conspiracy theory. Jason and Joel, I mean, you you look at all these signs like you know, the Daily Telegraph's anti-Soros headline, which is a little bit of a dog whistle, and the Daily Mail stuff about the judges. Are you Is this just like a temporary spasm to you, or are you actually seriously worried that we're, you know, we're sliding towards Hitler or something? I sort of think that we're... Um, I think this is a spasm. Because when I talk to people who are 20 years and more younger than me, they just don't understand this at all. And I get the impression that if, as seems likely, we do leave the EU, they will simply be pulling us back into it in a couple of decades' time, really quicker than you can say who the fuck was Theresa May. You know, I just don't (laughs) think they're going to stand for this shit. I really don't, because they don't understand it. It makes no sense to them, because they don't have the history of the the 40-year-old argument going on in the Tory party that this is all about. That doesn't mean anything to them in the same way that, you know, that shaking Stevens doesn't mean anything to them, you know. So I don't think they're going to go along with it. But it is, I mean, when politicians have destroyed their credibility... I mean, I, you know, maybe they're just too young to have lost faith yet. So if Corbyn destroys his own credibility by doing something like supporting Brexit, even though, you know, he's great on other issues that those 20-somethings care about, you know, that's what happened in Hungary. Um, the the last uh, socialist prime minister um, confessed to having, I think it said, lied morning, night and evening to win the then recent 2006 general election. And then that helped 
contribute towards socialists getting absolutely smashed in 2010 and then you get Orban and, and all the rest of it. So we've got to change this behaviour of absolutely selling out on your voters once mm. you're in power. I think you need to offer an alternative that seems realistic. Well, I'm, I'm thinking the centrist party sounds like a brilliant idea now. Well, <laughs> at, least, <laughs> at least if Hungary could get a centrist party. Yeah. Would do, we think, well, do we think that the, the clock is ticking on Orban, by the way? Because surely the EU... I know they've got this kid at the back of the class flicking the Brexit bogey at them constantly at the moment, but this is a big issue, surely, for the EU... They can't go along with this. Well, it seems to me that, you know, we've said this on the podcast before, that just because we want to, we think the best option or the least worst option is to stay in the EU doesn't mean that we think the EU is perfect or one and we should criticise it. And it should be criticised because they keep handing grants to him, you know, um, Mm. they keep, he's, he's, and and a lot of these grants go to contracts by companies that have some kind of link into the ruling party. And of course, they deny that there's anything untoward about this, but it does happen. This is the problem that the the EU hasn't really done very much. Uh, Maybe it's afraid that with Britain leaving if they start to get tough with other countries they'll start to leave too and then they'll have a a kind of institutional crisis It's almost like they're not as powerful as Nigel Farage said. Well indeed (laughs) But I mean, you know, I think the EU should face some criticism for for continuing to shovel money in Hungary's direction when, another thing we should point out is it's not just Orban, it's not just his party Mm. Fidesz, it's also the majority of voters in Hungary who have voted for this thing Mm. and do they share European Union values. The EU should be asking this of the Hungarian people mm, a lot more, don't you think? So, uh, having ranted a little bit, let's move on to the next one, which is, during the referendum campaign, the Brexiters blithely assured us that the members of the Commonwealth family would queue up to do trade deals with Brexit Britain. We didn't believe it, but some people did. The trouble is they forgot to ask the members of the said family, many of whom, surprisingly, have less than rosy memories of the great days of empire. Regarding a post-Brexit trade deal, the Indian High Commissioner in London... Yashvar Dansina told Politico, I don't think India's in a rush. He went on to point out that British negotiators' perceptions of his country were based on very dated or very incomplete knowledge of India based on nostalgia, the Raj or their connections. It's also been reported that another plucky former colony called Australia is about to demand that Britain uh, accept its hormone-treated beef as a condition of a post-Brexit trade deal. So that means that we'd have to vary from the EU's ban on the sale of meat from cattle treated with things like estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. So, Naomi, first, um, setting aside your great dislike of beef as a vegan, why did we ever think that the Commonwealth countries would just roll over and come to the rescue and do a deal with us, etc? I think it's a bit like when you break up with somebody and you're on the rebound and you drunk dial an ex <laughs> and if they've got any sense, they tell you to go fuck yourself. I think you know, that's basically what, what, you know, what India said to us. Um, look, every, almost every Commonwealth leader came out for Remain including the Prime Minister of India um, and urged Britain to stay in the EU. You know, they couldn't have been clearer about what was best for Britain and you know, I don't think they missold anything to us ahead of it. And, and, and Britain's response is, is just like this ridiculous inflated sense of self and arrogance and deluded notions of um, you know, British exceptionalism that we're something special uh, and, and that the world desperately wants to do trade with us. So you know, I, I, I don't really know why, you know why we expected anything different. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of similar to how badly prepared the UK was for Indian independence in 47 and and, um, the partition of of Pakistan and the chaos that ensued. You know, we are no better prepared for Brexit than we we were for that. That's a chilling thought, isn't it? Mm. One of the things that struck me reading, I was reading All Out War, the book on on the the, Mm. the characters behind Brexit, is how many of them were born in colonies or overseas. Mm. That so much of this was based on 
either a view of Britain from outside, people who've grown up outside Britain and an outpost of the Commonwealth looking into Britain and imagining a green and pleasant land and strangely thinking that as soon as they, they got rid of Europe, they'd be able to go back, not geographically or economically, but, but in time mm. to a thing that they sort of missed because they have a rose-tinted view of, of Britain as a, 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 the whole map being pink. Mm. It's this strange thing. Of, there's a lot of... Well, we know there's nostalgia in it because of the silly thing about heritage jams and things. Mm. But it's this weird idea that, that we can somehow do an economic um, deal with the past. Mm. <laughs> Which is insane. Is it also to do with the fact that, uh, you know, you're Boris Johnson's and so on, they're all public school yeah. kids. Are they are they taught about the glories of empire yes. at public yeah. school? Or is this just my state again, school chip on a shoulder? No, but I think, again, what you're just saying about in, in 20 years' time, people will not know why we did this because so much of this seems mm. to come from uh, public school debating rules, that, that whether you win or, or lose, beliefs in, in how the empire worked, reading the Arthur Mee children's encyclopedia that might have been on your granddad's <laughs> shelf. It's all based on a version of, of the world that doesn't exist anymore, even down to the extent that you can't stop the movement of data through areas that we're somehow separating ourselves off from Europe, but our data will travel through there. How do we... It's the modern world. It's definitely the 21st century. But with the solution to the 21st century crisis appears to be an 18th century solution. There's um, a very weird sort of dynamic to the thought that, that we would be able to do trade deals with India because we were the country that mostly held them up when Europe was trying to do <laughs> trade deals with India. And part of the reason for that is mostly because they refused to reduce their tariffs on whiskey. The other part is that we knew that if you start changing the visa requirements, the first place that mm. most Indian immigrants were going to come to was going to be yeah. England because there's a language similarity and there's a sort of cultural historic stuff. It, we shouldn't underestimate the fact that there is, of course, some kind of you know, historic connection there. And, and most, most middle-class Indians, certainly from my limited experience of having those conversations in India, have a pretty nuanced sort of grey view of, of how that operated, mm. predominantly very negative, but nevertheless still aware of the bits that they thought actually worked out pretty well. In so it's not as if that wouldn't have taken place, and that's why we kept on blocking. Now, the EU and India are about to start trying to re-kickstart talks on the basis that Britain is no longer involved, so it will actually be easier for them to sign off on them. But even there, I think there's an awful lot of troubles. They're extremely protective of sort of domestic sort of cotton and things like that. I think that, that they may have, they're going to have to at least radically limit the ambition of the deal in order to get it done. But the big irony behind all of it is Britain is an obstacle to a deal with India. And in fact, most of the stuff that the sort of Brexiters are talking about is based predominantly on myth and nostalgia. What was it Gandhi said about when asked about Western civilization? He said it sounded like it would be a very good idea indeed. <laughs> <laughs> As you've been hearing, our two special guests are Joel Morris and Jason Hazley, comedy writers and co-creators of investigative broadcaster Philomena Kunk, whose landmark series Kunk on Britain is showing now on BBC Two. If you're not aware of Philomena Kunk's work, as depicted by actor Diane Morgan, here's a little taste of why everyone is calling her the Richard Dimbleby of the 21st century. Today... Britain stands at a fork in its crossroads and its people are asking questions. Now we've got our country back, what actually is it? Who are we and why? The best way to find out where Britain's heading is to look behind us into something called history, a sort of rear-view mirror for time. So that's where I'm going, back there. I'll discover how we went from ancient man to Ed Sheerhan why Elizabeth I happened, and solving the mystery of just who Winston Churchill was, 
and why he wound up helplessly trapped inside this banknote. Uh, the story of St George killing the dragon isn't actually true because there are no dragons. After he killed the dragon, how was he rewarded? I mean, what's better than a saint? Well, he didn't kill the dragon because dragons don't exist. It's made up. But is it true to say he was the greatest Englishman who ever lived? The thing about St George is that he wasn't actually English. His father came from... Uh, the middle of what's now Turkey, and his mother came from um, Palestine, and he never actually came to England. Are oh, you joking? The fantastic Diane Morgan as Philomena Kunk there, interviewing historian Tom Holland in her inimitable style. That's from Kunk on Britain, running on Tuesday nights on BBC Two, and of course on the iPlayer. Jason and Joel, I see the show that in fact is running on BBC Two, except in Northern Ireland. Is that because really? uh, she's? Uh, oh yes, it says I said that on my iPlayer oh thing last night. Does it mean that uh, Philomena <laughs> doesn't have the approval of the DUP? Yeah, <laughs> you both actually look quite concerned. It's a political hot potato. Well, actually, libel laws are much stricter in Belfast, which is why most people file their suit there. So it could be the BBC lawyers all over it. Is that true? Yeah, Richard the Third. No, but we can't even say. You can't. We can't have libeled anybody. They're all dead. I mean, I mean, Pragger wouldn't pass a neg check if we libel. Oh, God, I'm, I'm, re- I'm terrified now. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm going to go and see my lawyer after this. And, uh, <laughs> see what we stand. No, I don't know why it's not running in Northern Ireland. We were very careful. We is the production, not just us two. Very careful to make sure we covered bits uh, from all over the UK. You know, in case it became too kind of you know southeast centric. Maybe thinking, fellow me, no, that sounds. It must be a shinner. Yeah. Surely we must be a shinner. <laughs> Can't have any of that in here. Also says no, and I'm, 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 I feel. <laughs> There's an interesting fact about why she's called Philomena, which is when she was originally devised, she was supposed to be, we had a character called Barry Shippies, who was a, mm. a crap renter gob played by Al Campbell, who's now a very, very accomplished director, who used to direct um, Wipe. Uh, and he was basically a renter gob guy, a pundit for hire. We wanted a female version of him, and the first thought was it would be someone who'd got big on mum's net, who they would have hired in because it was like sort of seen as being a bit modern. And the idea was she's going to be very middle class and basically very much like the other mums in Motherland that Diane is also in. Uh, and Diane turned up and did this terrific Bolton accent, which is hers, but turned up to 10. And we went, oh, actually, she's better there. But the re- Philomena is quite a middle-class mum's netty sort of name, but she got stuck with it. And so is that how the process sort of works? That you sort of you write the basic ideas of the character and then the person comes in and it just sort of bounces around until something Every else actress in Britain came in to read for Philomena. Kemp, I, I think, think probably, yeah. I mean, the, the, to begin with, we... Uh, Barry Shippies, with the, the joke with Barry Shippies and Philomena Kunk when they're in Wipe is that they're wrong. That's it. So you get to give them the difficult material, basically. Yeah. If you're writing a piece, you know, about um, an election result or something, that's fairly straightforward. If you're writing something about ISIS, you're going, oh, fuck, this one, this is dangerous. So you give it to Barry and Philomena, and they say things like, there's these amazing independent films coming out of the Middle East, and they're really fucking violent, you know. So you go, it's a hostel. Because they're wrong. <laughs> That's how you do it. But the thing is that Barry, Barry and Philomena had... We were writing separate material for them, and the producer said, you know we make them both record all the lines, don't you? So don't write separate material. It's all the same stuff. They're, they're both just wrong. So that's the only joke about them, is that they're wrong. So all you have to do with Philomena is to do... 
I mean, I look at her like, this is going to sound ridiculously romantic, but there's that nice thing that E.M. Forster said about C.P. Caverfee, that he was someone standing absolutely motionless at a slight angle to the universe. And that's how I see <laughs> Philomena Kunk, is that basically she's got a kind of child's eye on things. So, you know, when she looks at a flight of stairs, what she sees is there's lots of little floors between the big floors in this building. Why is that? You know, she's just got a, a shifted perspective in some ways, tilted. When she gets to sit down with an expert, you know, the expert's... Who are, ba- are told, you know what this show is, you know, you're, you're, in, on, you're in on this, you know, they're sent tapes, but they are basically told, imagine a child is interviewing you. Just go along with it, but be yourself, you know. So some of them really do lose their shit with her. There was some guy who got... I've done... Um, I've, I've had school trips come around their, their museum. So they're used to a gobby nine-year-old breaking away from the group and asking impertinent questions. And we say, just be as patient as you would with the troublesome kid in the class. You know, the programme wants the experts because it needs their expertise. Once you get them in, you know, I mean, the, when you write something like Kunk on Britain, we are given enormous fucking fact packs because God knows none of us. And there were four writers, by the way, Charlie Brooker and Ben Cordell, the other yeah. two, they must be named. Um, we're given these enormous packs on history because none of us knew a thing about history. We're all sitting there on the first day going, does anyone understand the Wars of the Roses? Have we, have we worked out the go, No, so we, we, we wrote we, it off in one line. We said the Wars of the Roses are too complicated for this programme to explain. But we had to, had to do, go through them, yeah. And that's yeah. actually the point I wanted to make is I found, I started the first episode and what I was laughing at was that you, you you've got you've got to a, to a T all of the TV cliches. So yeah. there's the unnecessary helicopter shots, yeah. there's yeah. the walking pieces yeah. to camera where you start the sentence in one place and you finish the sentence mm. in another place. There's uh, you know you always have to have harpsichord music when there's a picture of Hampton Court <laughs> yeah. and glossing over anything like the War of Roses that's a bit too complicated. And also when the interviewee says something that doesn't fit your crazy theory you just ignore them like yes. you know the georgian st george and the dragon he points out there's no dragon but she says well so after he killed the dragon <laughs> you know, it's all that what i'd like to know is why don't these brilliant satires uh you know the other one i think of is austin powers and the bond films why don't they kill off all of these cliches well the bond films are still going brass, brass eye has actually just ended up being the news that's the thing is, yeah. Yeah. day to day day to day oh yeah sorry the day to day ended up being the news and brass eye ended up being sort of current affairs really basically yeah. that's where Around. it went and oddly yeah. you yeah. end up just you skewer it but the, the truth of it is when people are making these programs this language is the quickest most efficient very often the cheapest way of making one of these programmes and budgets are getting smaller all the time. So to think outside that box, to produce something, I'm trying to think of things I've seen recently. Chris Packham's documentary on autism was different than a normal celebrity autobiography yeah, uh, documentary, correct, but someone had to think about it. Mm. And thinking takes time and is expensive. Mm. So what we're doing in Kunk is basically saying this is the off the peg uh, form of this. Weirdly, the one thing we don't do is coming up. That thing where they go, coming up and show you a bit they're going to show you later, because mm. we think that's wasting a joke. Because you're going to see, a, you want to see the same joke twice. But weirdly, that's the thing that annoys me most in documentaries, and we tend not to do that mm. in Kunk. Mm. Yeah, we do. We do do the throw at the end, though, don't we? Next time on gotcha. Kunk on Britain, I'll be asking what, whatever it is. You know, normally that I think for Kunk on Britain, those are real uh, throws to the next show. But normally they're the bits where we Put dump all the gibberish. You know, so next time on Moments of Wonder, I'll. We got one where she's picking up a handful of gravel and going, "Is this the world's biggest sand?" <laughs> <laughs> 
an an eight-year-old I know pointed towards one on YouTube, which is which her pointing at a tree, going, "What are these and why are they everywhere?" And I thought, if it's making an eight-year-old laugh, that's the best form of joke. I have you kind of broke me with the did Richard come a lot, which I I actually had quite a bad fuck up on that. I had to leave the room. You you basically you broke me. Well, that is that's that's Charlie's really really and Ben are both really good. That's more their department, which is just the absolute filth. And they're they're, they're better at that. And I always like that because it reminds me of something that someone said about Vic and Bob, uh, which is that Vic and Bob will do a song that should be sung by siblings in the back of a car on a long journey that drives the mum and dad mad (laughs) and call in an orchestra and dancers and do it properly and the thing about those jokes is they're not worth doing but we've got like a helicopter shot and the biggest expert on Horatio Nelson and she goes does a bum joke in front of him and I can't stop laughing at that because that's the most astonishing waste of time and I find huge wastes of time very funny as they do are you. very yeah. funny aren't they yeah. I mean there was a nice one where she was interviewing a medical expert and she's at my, the one that didn't make the cut which was my favourite question we ever wrote for her which is why aren't there more songs about doctors I'll <laughs> <laughs> Discussion. She kept interrupting. Go, oh, hang on, doctor, doctor, about the Thompson twins. But she had a brilliant, she had a brilliant logical, you know, a, a kunk logic um, walkthrough, which is where she goes. Well, what, listen, why can't we get? No one likes medicine, but why can't we get medicine flavored crisps? Um, and and you know, you think, okay, that's just a joke, you know, because and then you think, but that's a great delivery mechanism for paracetamol. If you put it on Monster Munch, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and yeah. you get kids to get painkillers yeah. as well as getting a nice Monster Munch at the same time. So, there's, there's, so it's not about Brexit, the series, but there's a lot of little. There's a whiff of it. Yeah, a whiff of it. It's just but gone, how, it's... how did you go about this? How, much, how did you that decide was, how much to do? That was a decision based on when we decided, and it was the whole team, probably led by Charlie, who said, we'll do Britain. Because there's, you're looking for a documentary series that's easy to parody, and Simon Sharma felt like a big Andrew Marr, felt like one that had been done in this key. It's Lucy Worsley's key, it's that kind of mm. thing. So you went, it was an easy, recognisable bucket to put the jokes in, uh, and also had a story and an order. Uh, and as soon as that happened, you go, well, weirdly, if you were making... We do this all the time with parodies. You go, well, what if we were the real people making this? And the first thing you go is, well, she'd stand on, on the White Cliffs Dover and say, now we've got our country back, what is it? At which point you part Brexit for the 22 minutes, do less jokes, and at the end of it you go, what have we learned about where we are? Neither of those things yeah. line up. But that's how you'd make a documentary series mm. if mm. you'd got Lucy Worsley to do it now. And obviously it works very, very well if you put Diane waving out of the Festiniog railway into a tree in front of it to say, this is a stupid version of that. But it looks and feels sort of exactly like the yeah. documentary they would make right now. No one went with our original ending to the final episode, by the way, which is because it obviously it ends at Brexit. And we then, we wrote an ending which hasn't been used, but which then said, next time on Kunk on Britain, so in other words, throwing into the future, and then we were going to play some clips from threads and go, people fuck for a plate of rat. (laughs) 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 We also lost, which is my my other favourite joke, which which got lost in the process, was uh, the the title of episode one. We said we got five parts to do the whole of Britain. And episode one was going to be called episode one, from the Big Bang to Henry VIII. And the idea that you were doing a landmark series that was going to go that fast. <laughs> this isn't going to work. Well, I, it reminded me, uh, uh, in, in a way, of Soft Border Patrol, the, 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 the um, mm. comedy show yeah. that we reviewed on the programme the other week, in that, you know, it's all wrapped up in quite gentle humour, but actually, every so often, quite a strong point is made. One of my favourites is um, when um, Philomena's saying, after the Romans left, Britain was left on its own. It had taken back control from the unelected bureaucrats of Rome, and it was free at last to explore its own proud destiny. It did that by immediately entering the Dark Ages. <laughs> <laughs> I 
problem is that's, that's lying there in front of you as an open goal when you get one of those. And also, again, that's the kind of line they're always doing in history documentaries, which is we use all the time, which is it was very much the internet of its day. That constantly uh, the past uh, with now. Yeah. So the Come moment on. that anyone from Europe enters or leaves, whether it's a rat with a plague, you're going, oh, oh, the BBC would want me to draw a parallel here. to Because the what you're always asking as a public service broadcast is why are you making this programme now? So we're asking that while we're making the programme in a stupid way to point out they're always asking this. And actually the answer is you shouldn't be asking why you're making the programme now. That's why everything happens on the exact anniversary of of, of wars and things. You could, you could do a programme about the Somme in a year that isn't the exact anniversary of the Somme. It would still be interesting. (laughs) Talking of the plague and the rats, I mean, at one point in episode two, she says the plague was caused by free movement of rats from Europe. (laughs) This raises uh, a question as, are you worried about the Alf Garnet effect? In other words, you are trying to satirise this, but some people sitting around say, yeah, actually it was those bloody European rats. Good job we're getting out of bloody Europe. I think we're sort of fairly safe with that because I think... uh, Alf, particularly because of the way he was played, was very sympathetic. And I think there's no argument that in every other thing she said in this documentary, she's been wrong. <laughs> so if you're going to go, well, on that one, she's right, you go, well, who's wrong there? That's, that's throwing it back on you. Mm. She's not been right about anything so far. But it goes back to this thing you were saying that everybody, you know, it's hard to do comedy yeah. now because everybody who is, doesn't agree with the line that you're assuming yeah. in the comedy uh, attacks you. Isn't that, isn't that going to happen? That they, They're going to say, actually, we'll ignore all of the other jokes. They're all kind of left-wing yes. Remainer kind of jokes. But I, I like this one because it's right. Well, we had when we were writing 2016 White, before anybody wrote a word of it, um, there was a kind of crisis meeting. Don't, don't turn um, me back there. Where we, um, we, and we <laughs> met up with Charlie and we said, we, we just don't know how to tackle this, you know, because this has been such a divisive year. We've got the referendum result, which is the first thing. That's going to be a big story. We're starting to write. We write them. We write it in order, and we've written up to I think um, March or April, and we were writing about one of the biggest stories of the year, which was um, Ian Duncan yeah. Smith resigning. And we were sitting there writing about this, going, "This is a this is about as fucking irrelevant, you know, as as as, yeah. uh, as the fifteenth century yeah. right now. It doesn't make any sense. It was only a few months ago. The architect so we had, austerity we had a, turning his guns on his on his leaders, and you go, any other year, that would yeah. be we'd the story. Yeah. Wasn't that what we were talking about? Literally five minutes ago and bang but that was that was AER it was anti-referendum you know um, no before refer- oh never mind stop being Latin <laughs> fuck off um, so we did so we had this crisis meeting with Charlie and said we don't know how to tackle this how are we going to do this divisive thing and he just said I think we just need to fire the machine gun at absolutely everybody we don't need to take sides we can just fire it all over the place and I think that's the deal with Kunk on, on Britain as well it's just we're, we're not you know it's not it doesn't espouse a particular position it just stands there and just strafes everything with stupidity from top to bottom another point at which you, you're you know, having a bit of fun with stupidity that I think makes a serious point is that all these bits of history like St George uh, and the Dragon and um, you know, King Arthur and Camelot, a lot of the sort of the, the Brexity uh, referendum sort of ideology that persuaded people to vote is based on completely false yeah. stuff. It's actually none of this happened. There wasn't a dragon. St George wasn't even English. Um, King Arthur and Camelot yeah. is probably made, etc., yeah. etc. Et that, that was but really, we, really we good. We treat fun. it as if it's proper. What the proper history that we're going back. That, to. that we should be teaching those things. Where was it? Civitas or something? You republished nineteen forties history books that should be given to kids. Hmm. There was definitely one of those think tanks sort of back to. I remember reviewing them on the radio yeah. once. That idea that there's an Our Island story that you want to undermine. The nice thing with Kunk is because we get experts in, this time around, especially because we knew how we were going to use them and we were telling a story with it, we could get Kunk to say, 
she's been an idiot all the way through, to say the thing that kids and probably I think a little bit, and Charlie thinks, you think, about history, knowing, because we'd investigated it and knew what the real facts were, that it would be counteracted by an expert who'd say, ah, hang on, this is my chance to say it. And then we'd let, leave them in saying the truth of it. And so you were left with the choice of, well, who do you trust? The person who we've set up as a clown or the person who got a chance to actually say, well, uh, George was, from, was a Syrian migrant. Hmm. Uh, you get a chance for the person to give the answer. So we, more than we've done on Moments of Wonder, the little clips we do on Charlie's show, we left people say the truth as within their, their expertise to answer her. And I think that that is probably about as political as it gets. Have we had, has Farage ever talked about um, St George? Has Kermit the fascist ever given us his <laughs> fucking opinion of <laughs> St George? <laughs> how, does he square the St, how does he square St George with his Syrian stroke Palestinian roots and all the rest of it? Have we done that? You're expecting that he would be in some way tortured by inconsistency. <laughs> <laughs> I've overrated sure that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk a bit about Paddington? I don't, know, I don't no. actually know you guys were... Involved in that, yeah. well, we were part yeah. of what's called the Brains Trust on Paddington. So Paddington had each each film had one or two key writers, and then Paul King, the director, brought in a Brains Trust of between ten and fourteen other writers just to go through and interrogate every single line of the script. Rerun and that's where we were. Stuff is, that, is that common? Is that usually how these things are done? It's quite common in Hollywood. In, yeah. in America, yeah. 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 But the, but this, one, this one had yeah. a lot of um, a transatlantic money, in it, and it had to be yeah. right. And it really was right. I mean, it really worked. Yeah, wasn't it? So yeah. we have this thing that we sort of do at the end of the show where you have like a time capsule thing that that you can basically take something from we'll before be Brexit, which we'll be coming to soon. And I was actually holding back Paddington and Paddington 2 for the time <laughs> capsule thing because it was almost, and I don't want to, but it was almost at the sort of Olympic sort of opening ceremony level for me of talking about a kind <laughs> of sort of London, a kind of country that I was... Nostalgic, but not mm-hmm. backward-looking. Yeah, exactly, because it's not as if, you know, when, when you have that sort of metropolitan thing, you don't have that, that nostalgia in you. You do for, like, a country that's pleasant and nice, and that mm-hmm. emphasis That windrush feel it had. Right, yeah, but it was just be nice. Be, yeah. be yeah. kind to yeah. people as well as anything else. Yeah. The, the key thing on, on Paddington 2, the key thing, I was just, just saying this in so many meetings, the phrase, please look after this bear, thank you, Yes, oh, is the so most lovely. British thing ever. It's saying, we will, if your bear arrives, please. That is the, the drive, that's the thematic drive of both Paddington films, is please look after this bear, thank you. <laughs> wow, I mean, if Isn't Britain it? can produce that, that's a lovely sentiment. Great, it starts and ends with please and thank you, doesn't yeah. it? Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> <Yeah. Or something laughs> So pleased there was, about that. A friend of mine was sitting in his local God bless pub. Michael Bond. Uh, his local boozer, and there was a real shaven-headed, horrible right-wing nutter who was talking about how I'll vote for the I'll vote for the BMP if they came out. And he was sitting there going, I'll put up with him. Came back a week later, the same guy was by the bar, and there was a pub quiz on. And this guy had formed a, pub, a quiz team that was just him, and his quiz team was called Fuck Paddington. <laughs> <laughs> And I went, I've come down on the right side. And he was thrashed by a lovely, wobbly group of, of old ladies called Albert Bumface. Uh, and I, I emailed Paul King, the director of Paddington, and said, this is going on. And he went, go, Albert Bumface, we're on your side. But yeah, uh, that man is the only person in Britain who didn't enjoy Paddington, so good. So one, one final question, back to Philomena Kunk. How would she have voted in the Brexit referendum? Do you she have would, in your idea? She wouldn't have voted. She'd have gone in for the warmth... <laughs> and probably, what's it? She said once, it's a really good, voting's a really good thing if you're really into pencils. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She'd have gone in and stolen a pencil. Was it, she said it was a good excuse to get into a primary school or something. Yeah. Which you don't normally get to. We've do. done lots of, of, of kunk on democracy. I think she, she represents to me that kind of person who thinks that politics has nothing to do with them. 
And I think that's quite an interesting thing that you go, I think, does that for you? It feels like she's one of those people. My my little brother had a a best mate who's a lovely fellow who had no interest in anything. And he once said, who was that? Who was that grey man who was on the television? And we went, John Major, (laughs) the prime minister of your country. Went, That was it. She's that. She has an idea these people are out there and this is going on, but it's nothing to do with her. Thank you very much. Finally, it's time to choose something to go in our Brexit time capsule. Each week, until we get a bit fed up of it, we're going to save something that we'd need once we left the EU or something that we'd miss once we've gone. We've had cheap comics so far and the 1.92 million cars a year we'd have manufactured if we had hadn't left. So, Naomi, it's now your turn. What do you got? So I'm going with the something we'll miss once we've gone. Um, and I'm going to put the United Kingdom itself oh, into Jesus. the Brexit time we're, capsule. We're really escalating this stuff quite quickly, aren't we? <laughs> you know, it's an English obsession. Uh, we talked endlessly on this podcast about how Theresa May is much more concerned with holding the Tory party together than the country. And I just don't really see how um, the UK ends up staying together for very long in a hard Brexit scenario, so Certainly, no obvious answer to this Irish border problem. Uh, if re- Brexit goes badly, the SNP will have a very easy time of blaming Westminster again. Um, and I think Welsh farmers are probably already uh, rethinking leaving the EU. Now it's clear that their subsidy will drop by 40%. Fair enough. That I was actually us- feeling quite happy at the end of that conversation. From Paddington, like Paddington to destroying that. country. Right, no, we're, back. Okay. we're back. Mr Curry's in charge again, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to Jason Hazley and Joel Morris, our guests. What are you working on at the moment? What are you going to do next? Well, I've just done a kunk book. So there'll yeah. be a book that will come out. It's just a sort of kunk on everything, which is really good fun to write, actually. Just realised how much we like being in that voice. So that we've just finished that. So we just we were on holiday having just completed an enormous one of them. Um, we're, we're, doing a, we're doing a sort of spin-off from the Ladybird books of grown-ups because we feel the world doesn't need any more of those. Um, but we're going to smuggle one in anyway. Set in um, the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's, and then what else are we doing? I think we're, we're writing a radio series then. Yes, which I'm which really looking forward to. current affairs pastiche. But something about Ooh. how uh, debate and news has broken, which is a big concern cool. of ours. So Good. hopefully... We'll be able to deal with that and it will fix. We're playing with those, you know, those <laughs> ideas. I think we talked about them last week, actually, about, you know, the, the difference between balance and... Objectivity. Mm-hmm. Objectivity yeah. and yeah. legality. Fake and that balance. Sort of we realised yeah. that no one's quite skewered that in a current affairs show. And I thought radio was a good place to do it. So we thought uh, it's it's sort of in the shadow of on the hour. What would a modern on the hour be like if you were skewering where the news has got to now? Well, talking of radio, shouldn't um, Philomena Kunk do a podcast? A Kunk cast? Do you know what what we really wanted to do? We we pitched this, actually. It didn't go, unfortunately. But we we wanted to do a Christmas, uh, a Royal Institution Christmas lecture. She would give a Christmas lecture and we would film, we would stooge an entire audience of people in that beautiful horseshoe-shaped room who just nodded sagely at everything. <laughs> no one laughed at a fucking thing. We really want, I still want to do this. I'm Christmas pitching this now to you again, Charlie, yeah, yeah. on a do podcast. Half an hour on gravity or wormholes or something at the Royal Institution, no Brilliant. one laughing. And Diane wanted to do a TED talk. She said, why yeah. does it film in a Which is so all this, I mean, there'll be more kunk at some yeah. point so hopefully it's too good to let go indeed thanks also to naomi and ian we'll see you all next time this week's foreign language clip is a bit of portuguese brazilian portuguese because we're an outward looking international podcast and it comes from listener beth mclaughlin no portugal falamos para as crianças vai para a cama 
O Nigel Farage vai te pegar. Muito bom, tudo bem. Now raise your glasses as we play out with our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the traditional thanks to our Patreon backers. Uh, it's thanks from me to Chris Palmer, Jason Bonner, Belinda Scott, Graham Hunt, and Jamie Taylor. Hello, and thanks from me to Silke Jaeger, Mick Lewis, Sean Petty, Anthony Money, and Matt Hammond. And finally, hello and thanks from me to Laura Rivkin, Andrew Peat, Mark Stradling, Andrew Calladine, and Jeremy Bowling, who sounds like he should be almost the BBC's Middle East correspondent. <laughs> <but isn't. laughs> Sorry about that, Jeremy. Romaniacs is presented by Peter Collins, Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. The producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Studio production was by Jack Claremont. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.